This is a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. By words about reading the scriptures, about preaching the scriptures, and about the mission on which the scripture sends all of us. We hear at a Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His Holy Word. I'm Pastor Willie Grills, here as always with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi, and joining us again is the Reverend David Appled of Paducah, Kentucky, continuing our discussion on the fourfold state of man. How's it going, guys? Going well. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to this. Should be a good discussion, yeah. so we can get right into it. Well, let's do a quick recap of the fourfold state of man. What is that? This fourfold state of man, right, we uh, covered at least the the first one for sure uh, in the previous podcast, but uh, it's this basic distinction or a way to look at human nature as it has changed through history or also as we kind of experience it ourselves. So the first state was the state of man in the Garden of Eden as he was created originally, and that was with certain capabilities, right? God gave Adam the power not to be able or not to sin and also the power to sin. So he could do either or. Uh, then in Adam, in the fall, this is what's common to all of us now. We have only the power to sin. After a person is converted, then they kind of go back in, in the order. They're now in this third state in Christ. And again, they have the power to sin, but also the power not to sin. And then the final stage, the fourth stage is man in his glory or in in God's glory, which is then the power not to be able to sin. Yeah, it's been an important distinction throughout church history. It was a particularly important distinction for St. Augustine and an important distinction that was recovered in the Protestant Reformation. So it's significant for Lutherans, Reformed, really whoever's listening. It's important because it is a biblical distinction, so it's therefore important for everyone. So today we're specifically going to look at the fall and the temptation and the results thereof. Yeah, because last time we had talked about specifically you know, man prior to the fall and what that meant, and now so we're dealing with, well, I, I suppose we're beginning primarily in Genesis 3. Uh, David, do you want to kind of unpack that a little bit? or sure. where, where do you well, want to go with all that? All I would say here before we really get into it is that this, um, I, I think we mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning again here at the beginning, man in in Eden is largely unknown to us, right? We have the witness from Genesis, and I'm trying to think of other passages that maybe talk a little bit about uh, what the world was like for Adam at that point in time, but it's it, there's very little said, and we don't we don't really we have no experience of that, right? Uh, but what we're going to talk about today is uh, very common to us. It's common to all people, and so it's more I don't know what the right word for it is. It's it's the world as we as we experience it now. The world post fall, right? Yes. Right, a world corrupted by sin and what that looks like, and it's something that we, uh, like you say, we all know. Uh, we all experience. So let's get into it then. Adam and Eve are made good. Okay, They are made uh, without sin. And so here they are in the garden, really the crown of creation. And what happens? What comes along? Yeah, so they're they're made good, and uh, but there's a, there's a test here or a trial, and uh, the temptation comes from the devil, of course, right? Um, in the form appearing in the form of a serpent. And uh, the temptation, we can kind of walk through it step by step. I think it's helpful to see what the devil is tempting at or what he's tempting Eve with, because that I think that can help us, especially connecting this with losing the image of God and then whose image are they going to be in after the fall, which is important for us then because we, by nature, are born in the image of who? In the image of Adam, right? Uh, and it's not until we're born from above, uh, that we gain the image of Christ. So you have in the garden uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And David, you had mentioned that there was this test involved, and the, the test uh, was that God actually gave a very specific commandment. You know, you shall not eat of the fruit of this tree. I think people tend to misunderstand the purpose of that commandment. And I think that's crucial for understanding, you know, what is involved in the temptation of Eve, because what you have in the commandment you shall not eat is God defining what is good and what is evil. Right. Well, as long as Adam uh, 
obeys that command, he actually has the knowledge of good, right? He he knows by observing that commandment, he is he has that knowledge. Yeah, exactly. So Adam is not actually deprived of anything. And that's kind of where the temptation comes in, where the snake comes in, the devil working through the serpent, making Eve think that she's somehow been deprived. But in reality, as long as Adam and Eve continued in obedience to that law, you know, you shall not eat of the fruit of this tree, they actually had, like you say, perfect knowledge. They were actually walking in the way of God. Right. And, the, and then they also would have had access. Now, we don't have any account of them actually eating from the tree of life, right? But they, as long as they eat, as long as they do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they're also, the tree of life is available to them as well. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, perfect knowledge, knowledge apart from sin, and they lack nothing. That's the thing, too. Um, everything they have is sufficient. They are taken care of. Everything is provided. There is no real struggle. Uh, the earth doesn't work against them. Um, presumably, you know, there's no risk from animals or there's no risk of, of, of you know, environmental harms. All of these are going to come about as a result of the fall. That's the thing. That's how the That's how the tempter, that's how the serpent works here is, like you say, begins with, making them doubt what God has said and then making them believe that God is holding out on them or that they are lacking something. Yeah, do you want, let me just read the actual temptation here from the serpent, okay? So he said to the woman, this is Genesis 3, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Right, so trying to implicate God, you know, he's he's really holding back from you, Eve. Uh, And the woman said to the serpent, "Uh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent then said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Yeah, you can just hear in the the devil's temptation there when he says, you know, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, when you eat of this, that God's been holding out on you, that God is somehow holding back from you, you're going to be able to decide for yourselves what is good and what is what is evil. You you will be the deciders of what is moral, whereas beforehand, God had said, you know, if you don't eat of this tree, that's what's good. And if you do eat of this tree, that's what's evil because good and evil proceed from God, not from ourselves. And there's there's so much here connecting back with that image uh, that we talked about last time. God creates Adam and Eve in his image, in his likeness. And here the devil uh, is obviously saying, no, you're, you're not in God's likeness. But by listening to him, Right. Um, think of an image in a mirror. Right. Uh, you you only reflect what uh, is in fr- the the image in the mirror is only a reflection of uh, what's standing in front of it. Right. And so Adam and Eve are a reflection of God, or they are in His image, in so far as or as long as they are listening to Him and and obeying His word. But as soon as the devil comes along here, it's like he's if you can stick with this analogy, it's like he's pushing God aside so he can stand in front of that mirror and then they're going to reflect him, right? They're going to obey him, which is the which is the fall here. It's an interesting story because, you know, we tend to think of serpents and snakes as somehow symbolic of evil or at least harmful. And that's not necessarily going to be the case in, uh, in the Garden of Eden uh, where there's still peace among creation and that sort of thing. So the so the so the devil here in the form of a serpent is really very wily and very crafty. It's really kind of sad because now forever snakes are associated with the devil simply because, you know, the fall of man is in there, you know, is caused by someone who looks like them. But my sure. point is it comes in a form that isn't really terrifying to them or necessarily strange to them, and it comes from outside of them which is going to be, which is that distinction that we talked about uh, last time. 
we don't understand not having an internal desire to sin. We don't understand having a will that isn't corrupted by the fall. Their temptation has to come externally. And also it tells us that there is this fallenness among the angels by this point. And this is significant for our understanding of the consequences of the fall. So the angels have already fallen, okay, or at least the devil has, and presumably, you know, his his minions, because the devil's here. And yet the world isn't fallen. The world only falls when, not when Eve, but when Adam is judged guilty, when Adam sins. And what's the significance of that? I think this goes back to Adam as the father of of the human race, right? Adam as the father of all people. And so the children are in the image of their father. The question is going to be whose whose image do they carry after this? And I think we'll talk about a couple of passages that speak about Adam being originally in God's image, but then for, it, it, the Bible never says Adam lost that image, uh, but it does cease talking that way. And it starts talking about Adam's sons being in his image and after his likeness, no longer after God's likeness. The fall of man is significant because it isn't the same as when the angels fall. When man falls, all of this creation falls with him. And so all of the consequences of this fall are going to apply directly to those who are listening to this podcast. Nobody is free from the consequences of Adam's transgression. And the severity of Adam's sin cannot be overstated. Well, because you had mentioned that uh, because Adam has this uh, freedom in his will, because he's actually able to choose between um, sinning and not sinning, something that we are not capable of anymore, uh, when he actually chooses of his own free will to sin, that makes his guilt all that much greater. Because it's kind of like, well, I mean, how, how would you describe it? It's the difference between someone maybe who's sliding around on the road and they go off the road because it's really muddy as opposed to somebody who actually just straight drives off the road. You know, <laughs> yank the yeah. wheel, right? Yeah, just you yank the wheel, wheel, you jerk it, and you're, you're off the road going into the ditch. I mean, that's, that's what's going on. The guilt is entirely Adam's. So why then is it imputed to us? Why is it imputed to us? Because this is the way that these things are passed on. I don't know. That's not explaining it all that clearly, is it? But I'm thinking of passages like uh, where Jesus is talking with Nicodemus and he says, flesh gives birth to flesh, right? Um, and so the sin of Adam is inherited or it is it is passed on. It, it becomes definitive for everyone who comes after him. Well, yeah, and, the, and that representative model, I mean, it's more than just, you know, we think of representative as, you know, a guy who speaks for us sometime. But when we talk about a representative model or a federal model, what we're talking about is the consequences of this head are the consequences of all underneath it. You know, so if you, if you get a headache, you don't say, well, my head's sick, but everything else is good. You just say, well, I have a headache, but you would say I'm sick, right? Yeah. And it's important for us to understand this aspect because the Bible says, you know, through one man, you know, sin came into the world and all of, you know, all of sin. But the flip side of that then too is through the one man, Jesus Christ, comes righteousness, which is imputed to us. If we reject that Adam's guilt or that the or that the results of the fall are in some sense imputed to us, then we destroy our entire theology of justification and righteousness as well. Because nobody, you know, it's very unpopular, it's more and more unpopular these days, especially, you know, in the in the Church of the West to say okay, you've inherited this guilt and you're guilty on the basis of what Adam has done. But a lot of people are really comfortable with, oh, you're saved based upon what Jesus has done. But the same principle is at work here. Yeah, that that head and body, uh, because it's even stronger than, as you were talking there, I was thinking, I was trying to think of another analogy that's fitting. And I was thinking about, okay, if you're on a team, let's say you're playing on a team and one of your, one person on the team either scores for you, let's say it's basketball, and you're you're lucky enough to play with, with some really good teammates, they can kind of carry you along. Or they can, if they screw up, right, you're affected by it. But the head and body fits it together even closer than that, right? Because if it's if it's just a team and we're on we're all on the same team, yes, we 
are all affected by what what the star player does as much as what the uh, bench players do, but uh, it doesn't have that same personal connection that you have with the head and the body or the members of the body. Right, right. And and you see this theme time and time again throughout the scriptures, one man speaking on behalf of the people or the people being judged based upon the actions of their leaders or most vividly, the sins of the fathers being visited upon their children. And it doesn't right. it doesn't jive with our modern sense of righteousness or our, our individual sense of justice. And yet this is the way that God has ordained creation and, and has ordained the world. Yeah, and the, uh, um, I got to mention this here because it's so great in Ezekiel when God says, what do you mean by quoting this proverb that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? And God, isn't this right? God tells Ezekiel, stop, stop saying that. Because the idea there is what, what you were just mentioning. People chafe under this, that I would be, that I would have to suffer for someone else's actions. And, uh, but the whole point is, this is the way it goes, right? We do inherit the world that our fathers uh, hand on to us. We, we can recognize that in, in all kinds of other ways. But we also see that at work with sin, original sin, and uh, the sinful human nature. We inherit the curse. We inherit the judgment that Adam that Adam brought on right. us. Right, and if we don't accept man and the fall and creation and all of Revelation according to the scriptures, you know, according to the way God has said, we put ourselves in the place of Eve at best, or or the servant or the serpent at worst, where the serpent says, hath God indeed said. He's trying to convince Adam and Eve that God's word isn't true. And we often find ourselves in that position, and really the position of the servant saying, well, yeah, God said it this way, but he really doesn't mean it. Or he meant it back then, but he doesn't really mean it now. Or some of his word is true, and other of his, others of his words are not. And look how the look how in his temptation he he takes what's what actually is true and he's going to twist it right. So God God has told them or God has given them everything. All good things are provided for them, like you said. And Eve even seems to hint at that when she says, "Well, we can eat of any tree except not this one that's in the midst of the garden." But the devil's scheme here is to say, "Isn't that so unfair?" And to us, in a, <laughs> with our fallen human nature, we're so susceptible to this to say, you know what, that is right. God is holding something good back from me. And so I need to take what is good in my own eyes at, because God, for whatever, whatever it might be, uh, his commandments withhold some good from me. It's worth noting here, too, with all of this and this, this talk of headship, um, it also explains why we're not guilty of Eve's sin. Yes, Eve sinned first, and that's true, but we're actually guilty because of Adam's sin because we are in Adam. Adam was actually Eve's head as well, and so the sin of of the the body in this sense uh, uh, bubbled up and then affected the head, and when the head was corrupted, uh, then all mankind became corrupted as well. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? And you get these kind of bizarre what if questions. At least I hear them from like my confirmation students. What if what if Adam hadn't eaten? What if only Eve had eaten? What if Adam like took the apple from her hand and threw it away or something like that? I mean, <laughs> who knows? How could you possibly answer these things, right? But it does present this kind of in, this opportunity to talk about Adam being head and uh, and so there, yeah, I guess there's this possibility that Adam might not have eaten uh, when Eve did. And who knows what would have happened right. then. Uh, but, you know, wh- whatever ends up happening, it's interesting how the, this pattern of sin repeats itself time and time again. And even among Christians, people who are sincere believers and then find themselves falling where they think they know better than the word. They think they know better than what God has said. And they think that they'll know more if they just experience this other thing or taste this thing or imbibe this other thing. And just like with Adam and Eve, where once they could see, they become blind and then all the more blind and then hard and harder of heart and more blind until they're just feeling around at nothing and can't find their way back to that truth that they once knew. So it, it is a pattern that repeats itself again and again, but 
we've got to take a break. So we will talk about the effects of the fall for us a little bit more right after this. If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history. www.wordfitlyspoken.org This is a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and David Appled. Today in particular, talking about the fall of man, the temptation, the curse, and the consequences thereof. We just wrapped up a discussion about creation, recapping the fourfold state of man, and now here we come to Adam who has sinned, and then there will be a judgment and a curse. So let's get right into that. Yeah, I'll just I'll pick it up uh, where I where I left off reading from Genesis three. So they they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, "Where are you?" And he said. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, this is the Lord, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So we have a, a pretty clear uh, description then of the effects of the fall already. I mean, just in the fact that they're they're blaming each other for this sin, they don't want to take responsibility. That's certainly something we can see even in our own day. You know, we don't want to admit our own guilt. We don't want to admit that we are actually stand in judgment before the Almighty God. But you know, it's my environment or or my upbringing or. You know, the devil made me do it, or whatever you want. My circumstances, anything say. but but my own proper will and my own choice. Yeah, they're right, and just this uh, the fear of the presence of the Lord. He walks in the garden as judge, right? He as creator and preserver of all things. He's also the holy judge, which before before they had sin was not a cause for fear in them, right? They I don't think that they were afraid of the communion they had with God prior to the fall, but now with sin having come into the world, there is this fear before the judge and they want to get away from him. They want to hide. Yeah. And so God uh, immediately um, is going to know what has happened. And then we get some uh, rhetorical questions and then the curse. Why, why is he questioning them? I think it's an opportunity I mean, that might sound a little cliche, but I think he is saying like, you know, why did you do this and giving them an opportunity to uh, repent and say like, you know, this, I actually did this. I am guilty because I mean, the Lord knows everything. The Lord doesn't actually have to hold trial. When we come to the judgment seat, we, he isn't going to say like, okay, now give me an account and I'll listen very carefully. He already knows perfectly everything that's yeah. gone on. And I think then when you have the question, you know, where are you and what is this that you have done? It, it's, it really isn't an, an opportunity while the Lord is still merciful, while the, the time of grace is still there, so to speak, to repent and to turn away from sin. But of course they don't. Yeah, it's interesting. He's not a judge. He, he's not a judge who needs like to be informed by the prosecutor. Right. He doesn't he's not waiting for someone to come in and say these two people were brought up on these charges. He knows what the charges are. And, and I think you're right. He's giving them or he's he's coaxing this uh, confession out of them. And it comes forth very slowly, but it does come out. Yeah. And and Adam, instead of saying, like, you know, I have sinned. And of course, we could play the what if game again. You know, what if he actually had repented? But instead of saying I have sinned, he says the woman made me do it. You know, somebody else made me do it. 
right? There's almost even a, there's a note of, I mean, it's not explicit, right? It's your fault, God, but there is this note of the woman, by the way, you gave her to me. <laughs> yeah, she this, is your, to me. this is your fault, God. This isn't mine. So what happens? Yeah. So then the judge is going to uh, deliver the, his judgment, right? And what the, the verses that follow, we will kind of separate them out here nicely, but the judgment is spoken to the three the three people who are involved in this, the devil first, then the woman, and then he ends with Adam with the head. Right. So let's, let's begin with the serpent. Yeah. So the Lord God said to the serpent, and he's speaking of, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on this, but through the serpent, he's, he's speaking not just to the creature, the serpent, but the devil. Right. And it's interesting, but we need to, we do need to stop and address this because the text of Genesis doesn't say it's the devil. It repeatedly refers sure. to him as the serpent. We know that the serpent is the devil based upon revelation in the New Testament. The New Testament speaks of that old serpent, which is the devil. So there's the connections there. It's it's become a, a kind of a popular trope. So-and-so.com uh, has a list of, of things you always thought in the Bible but yeah. weren't. And one of the ones is always, oh, it wasn't the devil in the Garden of Eden, you know, that sort of thing. But no, it is. The Bible elsewhere affirms that this serpent is the devil. Just because it's not in that text doesn't mean it isn't true. Right. And do we, I mean, so you're right. It, that comes up. I think the passage is in Revelation, somewhere in Revelation right. where it talks right. about the serpent, the dragon, the de- you know, the, the, the serpent of old, titles. serpent of yeah. old, which is the devil. Yeah. So some people, I mean, you get these kind of scatterbrained theories all the time, right? That, well, that they knew that later on in John's time when he wrote Revelation, but for the whole Old Testament, people just thought it was the serpent. Um, right, so, right. To me, I think it's equally uh, well. No, it's not even equal. It's it's much more obvious that no, they never they never doubted this. They never disbelieved that it it was the devil being spoken to. Right. But the judgment upon the serpent is very interesting. So let's let's get back yeah, into it. Yeah, okay. So because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Yeah, this is immediately where all the Sunday school kids go, Oh, so snakes used to have legs. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the pastors say, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's true. You know, it was bipedal, actually. It was weird looking. <laughs> no, um, of course, that's not the point of the text, although there is some kind of that, there is that general judgment upon the upon them. But most significant is the is the enmity. Well, I, th- I don't think uh, we want to pass by that dust too quickly. No, no. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm talking about the legs. Yeah. You know, we, yeah. don't need to, well, we don't yeah. need to like talk about... <laughs> The legs. Well, I know, and <laughs> we're, we're, we're not even we're not even so much talking about the legs as it is that. <laughs> but the dust, yeah, the, the, dust, the eating yeah. of the dust is a biblical way of talking about the utter lowliness, the utter subjection that this creature actually has to suffer. Well, yeah, dust as a biblical image isn't good. You know, shaking the dust off your feet is an insult, for example, because it's just filthy. It's as low as you can go. I mean, that's where everything defecates. Dirty feet are going through it. You know, it's not a high status position to be dragging around in your belly eating dust all your days. <laughs> and so and so part of that then with the serpent being forced to go into the dust, being forced down, is part of this the curse upon him that actually finds a fuller expression than in the enmity. So I didn't want to pass that by too quickly. I know you were just making a point about Sunday school stuff. Well, so yeah. It's it's also good to bring out because we'll we'll revisit it with uh, what he speaks to Adam. Where when Adam returns to the dust, there's obviously right. there's a connection. Yeah, that's just sort of that wallowing in death and yeah. the wallowing in the consequences of sin image that's yeah, but, going on there. Right. So just I mean maybe we could just but see Zelwyn just jumps right ahead, doesn't give us a spoiler alert. You know, it's the, <laughs> dust, is the, dust is the domain of death. Right. It's the, it's right. where the uh, it's where the devil slithers about or where the serpent slither about, and it's also where Adam is going to be returning to. Right. Well, I mean, we don't say this anymore, but like bites the dust yeah. back in the day was was a was a, an allusion to someone dying. It was a it was a euphemism for death. Now we then, just pass on. Then, now we yeah, just pass yeah. on. And then Queen, you know, the Queen song got played at every uh, sports ball game from time immemorial, and people think it's just about losing, but it's it's about dying. <laughs> 
See, so there's your idioms. There's your English idiom. The queen understood the second second state of man in Adam. (laughs) Well, Freddie Mercury certainly knew about man's fallen state. We can guarantee that. (laughs) We're getting pretty far afield. (laughs) (laughs) All right, back back to Genesis. Okay, the enmity. You want to focus on enmity? Yeah, we got to. It's in the text. We have to. Yeah, the enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of of the devil here. And the, of course, the, the verses, I think naturally we want to jump ahead to the uh, bruising of the head and of the heel. But if we can stick with the enmity just for a minute, that's going to help us understand, you know, the story of Cain and Abel. It's going to help make sense of what happens with with the flood where Noah is the only righteous one, Noah and his and his sons, and the whole rest of the world has become altogether evil, right? And uh, none, there's none who who seek after God. I don't know if, I don't know if you want to add anything in here, guys, but that's, I think a pretty accurate description of Genesis four, five, and six, you get, okay, what does this enmity look like? And then you can see it throughout the Bible. The righteous are persecuted by the wicked time and time again, Saul and David, you know, Jesus and the Pharisees. Well, you also do have a confirmation of the devil's judgment here though. We'd mentioned, I don't remember what podcast it was in, that the angels actually never have an opportunity to repent. Right. Um, they, right. they are confirmed in their sin. And uh, this, I would say this might even be an allusion to that, that uh, this enmity that exists means that you will never get off your belly, so to speak. Yeah, um, you are, yeah sure. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, because he's cursed yeah, forever for all his days. He's not, you're not going to get a promise like Eve is going or Adam and Eve are going to get here shortly. There's no yes, there's no the promise devil. to the serpent. There's no hope for the devil. Right. And and that's the thing is and God isn't required to. God is God is just in judging the serpent, the devil, the fallen angels where they stand. He doesn't have to offer them anything else. He doesn't owe them anything. Nor does he owe us anything. Yeah, he doesn't owe us anything. No, and that's the thing. That's when we talk about everything being being of grace. Here is what we have contributed. Here's, you know, here is what man has contributed of the fall into uh, perdition. And so God didn't owe us salvation either, but yet he graciously provides our salvation and our redemption from this sinful and fallen world in a way that he doesn't offer it to the angels. And we get a little glimpse of that right here in uh, Genesis 3.15. David, do you want to elaborate on that? Well, I think it's helpful to tie this back in with judgment. This is God speaking to the devil, and uh, we often call this the first gospel promise, right? But it's it's not, he's not speaking to Adam and Eve. I mean, they can hear, they're obviously within earshot, but he's, the judgment, the first gospel promise comes as a statement against the devil. I think that that's a, a valuable insight just to, to connect God's judgment with our with our salvation, that God, through his judgments, he's going to bring about salvation for his people. So God's going to bring this uh, salvation through a judgment, and it takes the form of the conflict between um, the woman's seed and the seed of the serpent, or, or the serpent himself, actually, because his head is crushed under the foot of of the seed of the woman. And of course, here we're pointing ahead to Christ. Paul clearly elaborates on this saying that it's the one seed in Jesus, the son uh, who crushes a serpent's head. Yeah. And we want to be, you know, very clear that this is, this is a messianic promise here at the very beginning of the Bible. And, you know, very shortly after the fall of man, that this promise of grace is given, even though life's still not going to be easy, all of these consequences are still there. Adam and Eve are going to taste death. There's going to be all of these other consequences, uh, birth pains, and even more than that, thorns and thistles, things that we don't we don't even think about. But let's let's talk about that a little bit. Um, what are the consequences for woman and for man specifically? Yeah, let me just read the uh, the. Ju- you want me to read the judgment Please. on on Eve and Adam? Okay. So to the woman, the Lord God said, "I will surely multiply multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you." You want to pause there? Should I keep? Yeah, let's let's take it. Let's take it one at a time. That way, we we don't miss anything here. So, pain's greatly increased in childbearing. Yeah, and I think the the contrast between life and death has come up in a number of 
places here. The Lord is the life giver. The devil is is the one who's bringing sin into the world. Of course, Adam is at fault too here, but he was a man killer from the beginning, says John in his epistle. And so this act that should be the passing on of life is now also accompanied with, I, I don't know, maybe this is too poetic, but uh, with this note of death, right? There's this note of pain in the, the act that should be, you know, in a, in a sinless world, it should be pain-free and a cause for great joy and celebration. But as we all know, you know, the, <laughs> it's no easy thing to get right, birth, in a birth to Right, and is a cause for great joy, but that joy doesn't come until after the travails yes. of childbirth. Well, it's worth pointing out, though, too, that there's actually a connection between the judgments here, because Eve is said to have her toil and labor in labor, so to speak, whereas Adam will have his toil and labor right. in working the, the, yeah, the fruitless we, we ground. We will get to that, but we can't take the easy way out and uh, and ignore the uh, the second consequence. <laughs> well, I wasn't trying to avoid it. I promise. Oh, I know, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, no worries. Actually, no. that's I, I think Zellin, That's a great point to bring out, right? Her the the Eve's domain or her her field of work. I, we didn't talk about this last week because there's just not enough time, right? Her field, her sphere is is what is affected by her fall, and that sphere is located in the family in the beginning. And so she experiences the effect of sin of her own sin in her sphere. And it's through, it's especially focused in childbearing. And like you said, Adam is going to experience that effect of his sin, of course, in his own death, uh, but also in his main sphere of work, which is in the field, right? Yep. Yep. That's interesting. It's almost as if men and women are created with specific vocational roles. As if. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we know that's not true. (laughs) <laughs> There's too many World War II propaganda posters that say otherwise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I mean, and then so you have here then in also uh, the description of what is going to happen. Your desire shall be for your husband or against your husband. Part of the uh, sin affecting Eve's sphere is going to mean that she's not going to be content with her station. Yeah, and so even sphere, I mean, I used that, that term. I was kind of hunting for a term. I was trying to think of one that isn't, it doesn't have a negative connotation, but it, it just, that's the way it is now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. Hunting for that word, but sphere, oh gosh, I don't, don't keep me within my sphere. It's, it's about all boundaries. Well, <laughs> isn't this an effect? Any boundary becomes limitation and we want to trespass the boundaries. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you see that effect. Um, and so Eve's desire is for authority that's not been given her. You see this also, you'll see this pictured in the scriptures where, like Deborah, for instance, or whatever, if a woman's put in this position, or if, you know, in certain cases, God puts a woman in this position, it's usually because God is judging the men for not fulfilling their obligation. Well, you actually have a clearer picture with Rachel when she goes up to Jacob and says, you know, give me children or I'm going to die. And Jacob rebukes her and says, am I God who has closed your womb? You know, I don't have yeah. this kind of authority, Rachel. So, Well, I just went to Deborah because I'm always John Knox posting. And so, you know, that first <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> There's two examples right there. And that's what that looks like. And yet we sort of gloss over that. We don't think of that in terms of the fall and the effects of the fall. Yeah. So the, yeah, her, her desire for to rule over her husband, but then his, and also his, his ruling back over her, both of both of these things are in a negative way. I should say that if without the fall, Adam would have ruled over her in a in a healthy, life giving way. But after the fall, that rule and that that dominion within a marriage becomes a, a constant conflict. Not constant, but it it is often times. Yeah, and, and it manifests. I mean, the, the cliche is the brutish, overbearing husband. And yet it's manifested in the wayfish, um, completely subservient male, too. It's just all an effect of the fall. We've forgotten how to think. We've forgotten how to live. And that doesn't mean that everybody has to look like some kind of FLDS, prairie dress wearing fundamentalist Mormon or anything like that. That's not what we're saying here. We're recognizing, though, these God-given spheres, we'll go off that word, that are part of creation. And that the fall has affected and oftentimes turned on its head. Well, what about Adam then? Yeah, let's give, we'll give the judgment here uh, for Adam. 
So the Lord said to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Yeah, the ground is now working against you. The very ground, the plants now are going to be a threat to you. The barking of a dog you know, I say that too much, but the barking of a dog is now proof that you have fallen. Uh, animals are going to rise up against you, but even the plants, even the plants are now going to cause you harm and work against you. That's a significant, that's a significant effect. Right. The Before in Genesis 2, we hear a lot about the Lord planted the man in uh, the garden to tend it, to keep it. And I, we could talk about that word keeping. He fails to keep the garden to protect it. That word has the, the connotation, not just of keeping it like rooting out <laughs> the weeds, but he doesn't keep it when he allows the serpent to, to tempt, right? He should have crushed the serpent's head right there. That would have been keeping the garden. Uh, but now, now his job, his work becomes not just tending what will grow up of itself, but becomes sweaty and cursed and it doesn't produce fruit. It produces thorns and thistles. The whole creation is subjected to futility through Adam's. And and that's another one that we've, again, we kind of lost sight of because I'm sitting here in Iowa and I can look out and see half million dollar combines and genetically modified crops that nothing will stop them, no matter the the weather or whatever comes (laughs) by. And uh, we've lost a little bit of that risk. You know, it's not been that long ago that if you had a bad crop season, that the family was going to go under and, or a bad harvest season, I should say, or if hail came by and destroyed the crops. It's not been that long ago where, where this lesson here was much more vivid in the minds of the, of the people. Yeah. You know what? Now it's uh, instead of living in fear of, uh, you know, we're not going to have uh, a good harvest. Now it's, you, you just live constantly under, under debt. Right to right, get that half right. million dollar combine, you you have the <laughs> advantage of not having to worry about food. But now people swim swim in debt their whole lives. Yeah, you might yeah you might lose the farm just because you're not going to be able to make that payment. Yeah, you know, that's right. True. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Although I I do live in a part of the world that is effectively semi arid, and uh, we always appreciate the value of rain oh, sure, out yeah. here and. When you, when you recognize, for example, that like last year, some parts of this of this area got like seven inches of rain total uh, for the whole year, and when you get that little, even for this area, and we had such a dry year and emergency, yeah, we really are more dependent than we think we are. Yeah, than we realize. Well, you grew up on a uh, on a cattle farm, so or a cattle ranch. You know, one false move, it might be lights out for old Zelwyn. I mean, it's those dangers are there. <laughs> the people who work. Honest sweater their brow work, I think oftentimes can understand these these initial things uh, much more clearly than you know a hedge fund manager or something like that yeah but, but you know I'm just a, a member of the proletariat like that I guess <laughs> my father was a clergy person so we never had to worry all right guys well <laughs> we're coming up to our next break when we get back we'll talk about the most dire consequence of the fall you're listening to word fitly spoken We'll be back in just a few moments. A word fitly spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all his fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. This is a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi and David Apple talking about the fall of man and the curse. We've talked about the curse put upon the serpent, the consequences for Eve of the fall, the first consequence of, 
of Adam's sin, which is the ground working against him, and now the most dire consequence of all, which is which is what death. Yes, and uh, we'll just uh, let me just reread this from the from Genesis um, because this is the this this is the final word of judgment here from God. I think it's worth just reinforcing that point here. The curse that Adam brings into the world is not somehow apart from God, right? This is God's just judgment on sin. And so it's not like these things are, woe is us, or we're victims here. Um, and somehow these things are happening to us apart from God's knowing about it. Um, this is his judgment on sin. This is the just uh, condemnation of sin. And it, cli- it reaches its uh, final point here, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Period. <laughs> <laughs> and man knew what that meant, or Adam knew what that meant. Yeah, that's actually a really important point because you hear on occasion some some people ask like, well, you know, Adam didn't die, you know, for several hundred more years. Maybe, you know, he hadn't actually experienced death. So how could God say that he would die? It doesn't seem fair because he wouldn't understand it. You know, it's not fair to punish somebody with something they don't understand. But Adam did yeah, understand you, it. You, oh man, are being undone. Right. And and it it does. You're right, Zelwyn. He doesn't take his final breath for uh, who knows how many more years, but he does immediately begin to die. Right. So the he's is now subject to corruption. He's subject to decay. He's subject to death, even though he doesn't experience it in the you know the way we think of it, where a doctor comes into the room and says, "Okay, this person, we're going to pronounce their death at you know ten twenty nine p.m. He, he's finally dead." He he is dead at this point, or he's beginning to die. Well, and he's and he's also he's going to be feeling that immediately uh, when he feels pain for the first time, yeah. when he stubs his toe for the first time, you know, whatever. When a tooth falls out, he gets acid reflux. You know, whatever was <laughs> it, whatever was affecting him, then he's going to be he's going to be experiencing that very quick. Even even th- you know the way the body uses energy. You know, all of these things you know are, are pointing to death. And so he's going to know that very quickly. And I would argue that, as I've already done, that he knows what God is talking about immediately, but he's going to experience these effects rather quickly. Not physical death immediately, but those precursors that everyone is going to feel. Right. Yeah, and so now his descendants, of course, you know, us— Prior to coming to faith, and I think that's important to emphasize, we're talking about the condition of man before we believe in Christ, which is common to everyone, even those who don't believe. Um, Now we can feel, too, uh, the effects of sin and also death. I suppose the things you can't avoid in this world are what? Death and taxes? Is that how the expression goes? (laughs) Right. And so so then that brings us to something like like Romans 5, because the question is going to be, well, what do you mean death, death comes to us through Adam? Well, Romans 5, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Well, I was just going to say a lot of times there will be um, people who say, well, you can't prove, right? You can't prove this doctrine of original sin because you you can't. How do you know that that people are sinning? Right? How, how do you have the proof? We, not every sin is like Adam's sin. Not every sin is this visible reaching out and taking of an apple. Lots of sins are committed in secret or only in the heart or only, you know, even if it's something that you neglect to do. Well, but there is something that shows up quite clearly in every person. And like you guys were just saying, that's death. And death is the, I don't know if you want to put it this way, but death is the evidence. It's the proof that everyone. Right. And 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 that death can come even apart from actual sin. When there is a miscarriage at any point of gestation, that's still a human life gone. That's still a life that has ceased. We're not going to say the embryo has committed actual sin, and yet it still suffers that consequences. Why? Because all have sinned. When Romans 5 says all have sinned in that context, it's not necessarily meaning that because everybody committed specific actual sins. It's saying, no, that in the fall of Adam, all have sinned. Death is passed to all because all have sinned in Adam. Yeah, even if you you never actually committed a, an actual sin, even if you never did anything wrong, which is impossible, of course, because right. we're sinners. But even if you didn't, you would still be guilty by virtue of being in Adam. Right. And 
And really, death comes significantly to all men, but death really comes to everything in creation now because of the fall of man. Your pets are going to die. Your livestock is going to die. Your rose bushes, whatever. Death is really touching everything. But most significantly, it's coming to man. And because we've all been judged guilty because of this principle, because of this, of Adam as the head. And that's also a really great point, too, because we have in Romans, uh, I don't remember the exact passage, where we talk about creation groaning, right, un- uh, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. The The creation itself has been... That's Roman, it's, uh, Romans 8.22. Romans 8.22, yeah. So the, the creation itself has been subjected to futility because of Adam's sin. That, I mean, he is also the head of, well, I mean, we call him the crown of creation. So he is the, the head of creation as well. And what happens to man happens to the whole. And that's why why we have, you know, disasters. That's why we have things that break down. Uh, the, the world is falling apart because Adam sinned. Yeah. yeah, and we have to use these terrible examples um, you know, of children or disasters where thousands of people die. And it's a very difficult subject to discuss simply because those are such horrible, horrible events and traumatic events to those who experience them. And yet, objectively, we have to step back and say, yes, this is a result of the fall. This is the result of that initial sin entering into the world. Yeah. yeah, And one, and one of these effects is this loss of, of this knowledge that should, you know, we kind of post- uh, conversion in faith, we we recognize this quite readily, but the natural person or the person in Adam, the person apart from faith in Christ, doesn't make this connection between death and sin that we would we would say, well, yeah, it's obvious, right? Or it's it should be <laughs> obvious to the Christian. And so the just the the actual awakening of a person to sin and its consequences is must be revealed to a person. It's not a natural inborn conclusion that people have. Right. People, yeah, people will know the good they ought to do, or, you know, at least in some sense, what God is expecting from them or who God is. And yet apart from that regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, um, through the preaching of the gospel and through the means of grace, apart from those things, a person can only sin and will only sin and will only turn away from the light. And we'll also say that it isn't sin because, you know, they're they're so blinded by sin that they can't even see for yeah. it for what it is. And this is kind of what kind of what you were talking about, David, with the knowledge. Right. The children of of the lies, the children of the devil, the saddest part there is that they don't the a person who believes a lie doesn't doesn't understand that they're under deception. And so to 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 save a person from deception, you have to go to extreme lengths. Think about some of the examples of cults, these people who, who are brainwashed, who, who, who buy into this whole, this whole deception that they've been sold. How difficult is it? And it, it's rare, sadly rare, that you hear a story of a person who is brought out of a cult, brought out of some kind of well, an obvious lie like that. And yet it's so common for people to to believe the lies of the devil that there there is no sin or we're not all sold under this slavery. Uh, my sin is not a big deal. And and even if I you know if I'm going to even admit that there is such a thing as sin, right? You know the the cult example is 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 very interesting because we'll look at without naming specific ones, but you'll look at certain cults and think, well, this story is patently absurd. Who could believe this? This is absolutely preposterous. And then you can turn your nose up in a haughty fashion and go, see, I'm not like this person. At least I don't believe this story. At least I don't believe this obviously false thing. When the reality is, what this this is an example of, the hardness of men's heart and the blindness that men experience apart from sin. And those who have been enlightened and who have been brought into the faith, we ought to look upon those people who are lost uh, with some pity and certainly Christian concern and a desire for them to hear the word and to believe according to the will of God. We would be just as blind and just as hardened as any of the people in the worst cults in the world had God not pulled us out of the mire of our sin, had God not delivered us. Because that's the thing. In the fall, we are rendered utterly enabled to come to, or enabled to come to God of our own accord. 
salvation, the salvation of any individual is a miracle in and of itself because it requires God to send the preacher to that person for God, for them to hear the word and for them to be born again. Yeah. And if just to go back to Genesis, we're, I'm, we don't need to read it, I don't think. But what happens immediately after this judgment is that man, Adam and Eve are both driven out of the garden and they're barred from entering back to eat of the tree of life. And so it doesn't say in so many, you know, it doesn't speak systematically like a, like a dogmatics book that now Adam and Eve are in their fallen state and they have no righteousness, no holiness, no knowledge of God. But it's, it's a little more, it's a narrative way of saying they are out of, <laughs> don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying it didn't actually happen, but they're apart from God, their communion with God is severed. And there's this obvious way of telling that because they can't get back into the into the garden, which was the place of life, the place of communion with God. There, it's not just that they've forgotten how to get back there, but they can't pass through that that flaming sword of the chariot. Right, right. I mean, it, it is it is this very this very intense image of of the angel with the sword in all directions, and so they 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 cannot. Yeah. There's that's meaning that there is no way that they can come back in. There's nothing that, or I should say, that there is nothing they can do to gain readmittance. Yes, right. God has to seek them out again, right? He has to He has to go out and bring them back into communion with him. And I think that this is really what people balk at. It's, a, it's an easier pill to swallow to say, well, in the fall, you're just a little wounded. But if you pick yourself back up, you can get back in because God's made this way if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah, he just he kicked them out the front door, but they can run around yeah. the back, right? Yeah. Yeah, and kind of Yeah, and that's not all. Yeah, yeah. It, what really happened was he kicked them out. <laughs> he slammed the door and brought the house down. You know, not a stone is left standing. It's the end of Poltergeist. Okay, the house is gone. You can't go back. <laughs> and it's a it's a it's a frightening prospect, and it's not an easy pill to swallow. Um, like I say, much much easier to think. Well, it's not really that bad, but it is that bad. It is. And and we chafe at this. Even Christians yeah. chafe at this because it's a subject for another podcast. But we still have we still have the old Adam, and we still have the something of a sinful nature. And and even Christians chafe at this. Well, you take the the words of Christ, for example, um, and they're beautiful words and they're they're comforting words. Um, but they actually reveal this quite clearly when he says that you know I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Fallen man has no way back to the garden. Well, we're not going back to the garden, but no way back to God apart from what God himself has ordained, and that is his son, Jesus Christ. And he necessarily had to ordain it. Um, Otherwise, or I mean, I should say it's necessary for us that he ordained it, because otherwise there would be no hope. We would be justly left in condemnation. Yeah. And one of the things of about just this, the folly of thinking that you can get back into the garden or sneak in and God not know it. This is part of what the devil, the devil's temptation was for Adam and Eve was that you can get life or you can get a better life. You know, you can have your eyes open. You can become like God. He's holding out on you. And so if you sneak, if you, if you take this alternate route, you're actually going to achieve a better life than the one that God has given to you, right? And what happens is by doing that, they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They get separated from God. They're separated from that tree of life, which was the symbol of the, the higher life that they should have attained. And so now they're completely cut off from it. And it's not even a case of like uh, God giving them a booster shot and now they can, you know, get back in or, you know, God vaccinating them or something. And now they're, they're good to go and they can work it out on their own. No, apart from God, there is no hope for salvation at all. Right. Yeah. Can I, can I tie it back in with the dust yeah, and the right image ahead. here? Please. So remember earlier, earlier we're talking about the devil his his punishment or the serpent's punishment is to crawl in the dust. Adam's punishment, Adam's judgment is he is going to uh, return to dust. Think of First Corinthians, I think it's in 15, when Paul talks about we have all borne the image of the man of dust. And sometimes you can sort of take that as a, 
maybe a neutral term like, well, okay, Adam was formed out of the dust. And so it just means like, we're all just like Adam, we're human. Um, but I think that what, what we've kind of touched on here is this dust as a indicator of lowliness, of humiliation, of death. And so when, we, when it says that we have borne the image of the man of dust, it means we've borne this image of death. We've borne this image of curse. We've borne the image of judgment. And the only hope is to bear a new image, which is the image of the man of heaven. Right. And so where is the hope for that image? In the person work of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. But that is the promise to all who believe in this, that they will receive salvation, that God will raise them up again at the last day, and they will enter into a state even better than that which Adam and Eve were born into. The the garden, in a, in a way, was great, <laughs> but the, what is still waiting for us, uh, words can't even describe. I mean, you could describe the garden. God did it very well in, in Genesis, but what he has prepared for those who love him is beyond all of our expectation at the, the marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom. And as it has been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. We've got more on this coming up in future episodes. If you like what you've heard, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or check us out on Twitter at wordfitly. Thanks for listening, everyone. God love you and God bless.